and it was a major mistake. I'll never forget it. I made a change in our database that became a global change, and within minutes, we had major manufacturers calling us to tell us the data were wrong. And so I was getting phone calls left and right because I was the guy responsible. It was really hard, but once I heard it, I walked into the head of that group's office and said, there's a major mistake, here's what happened, here's what I did, and here's what I'm going to do to fix it. Hey there, this is Ben. Thanks for tuning in to Lead the Team. Before we jump in, we just broke into the top 2% of all podcasts globally, and that's largely due to the support of listeners just like you. I invite you to subscribe so you're notified when we release a new episode and also leave a quick review. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back for another terrific episode. Today, I have a treat for you with Daniel DePino, who is president financial services, public sector, and government over at the MPD Group, where he's steadily risen throughout the ranks for over 23 years. And the, MP and the MPD Group, in case you're not familiar with it, provides data, industry expertise, and prescriptive analytics to help grow over 2,000-plus companies worldwide. He's married to his wife, Tara, with two beautiful daughters, Mia and Melania, over in Pennsylvania with a couple of rescue fur children, Daniel, welcome to Lead the Team, sir. Hey, Ben. Thank you so much for that lovely intro. Appreciate it. Oh, so, so good. So many things I've been looking forward to uh, digging in with you today. But let's get started with the most important thing, youth soccer. Uh, we had a little pre-conversation uh, before we had the, uh, got on today and talked a lot about that. That's a passion of mine. I know it's a passion of yours. What have you learned as a youth soccer coach? Yeah, thank you. So soccer and sports in general is a big passion of mine. Um, in my later years, uh, I, I thought it was a good way to give back to the community, not just because my kids play it, but also to give the opportunity mm. to other kids. Um, to me, mm -hmm. soccer is more than a game. I think there's a ton of life lessons that, that get portrayed, whether you're on the pitch or off the pitch. Uh, there's a, a lot of good valued lessons that we go through. Um, leadership, you know, here we are, right? And uh, we're talking about this on a podcast today, but there's there's a ton of leadership that goes on, not only in a team atmosphere, but on an individual atmosphere. Uh, I think, you know, building attitudes, building life lessons, and really um, being able to portray um, in a team atmosphere, you don't play for yourself. You play for the person next to you, and that's what's beautiful mm. about the game. Yeah, it's uh, you may have a star dribbler, or you may have a star. I guess I'm thinking basketball, but you may have a star on the on the soccer pitch. But uh, it doesn't work unless there's someone to pass to, someone to defend, and it's just so important that everyone plays together. Now, when I started, I thought you know I wasn't really so sure about coaching soccer. I didn't have a ton of experience as as a youth. I, I did play some, but not a lot. And suddenly I was put in charge of a young, I think I was starting with like five-year-olds. And I told my wife, I'm like, I'm clearly not qualified for this. And she was like, Ben, they're five-year-olds. Like, you can do this. And I sort of gradually grew through it. 
Um, and I actually pulled in a couple of friends who play collegiate soccer later as I got higher up because I needed to grow my own expertise level on this. How did it go for you? Because you've been at it a while. I mean, what? How, how did your development as a soccer coach go? Uh, every, every time I'm out there, Ben, it, it's a learning experience for me. I, I do this thing after every session, every training session, maybe after every game. I have a, a reflection process that I go through. Oh. Some things that I've done really well and some things that I need to learn and get better at. Mm. Not every session is going to be perfect. And I just had to learn to kind of accept that and also know that every single kid has a different capability, mm. uh, whether it be communicating or whether it be playing. It really didn't matter. It's just uh, adapting to that style and being able to reflect on that. Um, over the years, uh, you know, I've found that watching other coaches and watching kids themselves was the best way for me to learn new skills and techniques. I learn every day. I'm not the best coach out there and nor do I want to be. Uh, I think every opportunity that I'm out there gives me a new opportunity to learn something new. And, uh, you know, I'm surrounded by a great group of kids in a great community with a great club to the point that I decide to actually jump on the board of that club to help raise awareness of soccer in the community. Man, how cool. It's so great for leaders like yourself and organizations to have that experience in a different realm to lead. And to learn about that. And I love the reflection process. I think a lot of leaders miss out on that. Uh, I think John Maxwell or someone in that realm said reflection is is translating life's, your own life experiences into wisdom. And if you don't wow. take time to do it, then you, then you miss out on that. Sure. Uh, it, do you... Is this something that you picked up as a reflection process from a certain coach or a book, or maybe you don't even know where it came from, but you've sort of stepped into it? Do you have a, can you share a little bit on that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's a balance. Um, certainly seen other coaches do it. Mm. Um, I recently went through some licensing classes through U.S. Soccer, and okay. I think that's where it really resonated for me. Um, going through those, you know, six to eight weeks of courses and getting officially licensed in U.S. soccer was was important for me. Um, but it was also where it just really, just really became truth that yeah. having that reflection process in the game is really important. And it's okay to make mistakes. You at the end of the day, we're all human. Whether you're at work, whether you're a dad, whether you're mm -hmm. a soccer coach, it is okay to fail. Fail quickly, learn from it, and, and move fast. And um, I've accepted that. And it's taken me a long time, you know, uh, growing up in, in the world of the professional environment. But also, as, as you mature, you start getting a little bit more comfortable with making those mistakes and adjusting for them. And that's what makes you better. Yeah, I really think that's on a growth continuum for a lot of people. Because first, you become a leader, or a lot of people do. And they're like, hey, I, I can't make mistakes. I got to be perfect. I got to bat a really high percentage. And then you realize as a leader, well, you're going to make them. And it's important that as a leader, you got to help your team think through the mistakes when they come, handle them, and ultimately grow for them and, from them and not just bury them down and sweep them under the carpet. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree with you. So let's dig in your career a little bit here, just sure. beyond the soccer pitch. I know you're mainly a, a soccer coach full-time. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we spent a lot of time on that. So what was it like when you were seeking to be promoted to run a practice for the first time? Because obviously, you know, in 23 years in one organization, you have a, sort of that that nice, 
but I was looking at your LinkedIn through that nice progression inside of the organization, but it looks like you had like eight or nine roles, uh, different roles, seen a lot of different parts of the business, but what was it like when you were seeking to sort of make that, that big jump up? Sure, sure. So it's tricky, right? I, I was born and raised in the one organization, which I'm so proud of. This organization has given me more personally and professionally than I could have ever thought of when I walked in back in 1999 um, and and started my career here. But I held multiple multiple jobs, and you know, not being complacent, challenging the status quo, being competitive, uh, were things that I think really helped me succeed within the organization. However, what I noticed it was my shortcomings and why I wasn't ready. Uh, earlier on in my career to take that next leap, whether the position was available or another position was available, I think there were sh- some shortcomings. My competitive edge sometimes got the best of me uh, to the point where perhaps my bluntness and my very quick to approach the the truth uh, probably rubbed some people the wrong way. And so what I had to learn was how do I get in a room and listen more than speak how do I actually communicate without being militaristic? And through those changes, Mm -hmm. I was able to um, showcase my capabilities of running a successful business, growing that business, and really taking a, a lead. And as a result of that, it was what empowered me to be the better leader that I am today. Uh, and I'm genuinely so thankful for for many people that I've surrounded myself with uh, that have actually given me that guidance and weren't afraid to give me that feedback. Feedback is a gift. And, and, I, and I cherished it and grasped it, made the changes I needed to make. Not only, again, not only in my personal life, there, that's, uh, it's also a professional piece as well. So maybe play that through for us. So say you're entering a meeting, you know, Daniel before versus Daniel after the transition, like how would, how would you enter the room or how the conversations go versus this, this change you made? Yeah. You know, I think my, uh, opinionated ways were probably a little bit more vocal with uh, a bit more authority, so to speak. Where now you're like banging on the table? (laughs) Well, not not quite not quite banging on the table. Um, I I just think it was a little bit more boisterous um and more pronounced. And you know, what I learned was sometimes the idea could be better if you have 10 other people contributing to that idea. And it's not just about what your concept is. It's about the inheriting what the other concepts could be and potentially does it get better? And, you know, realizing that was a a big step for me. And once I did, I got better. Hmm. I was a better leader. I was a better manager. It allowed me to be progressive in the business. Um, And so just kind of listening more and not doing so much of the speaking. I mean, what a, what a growth moment for so many people. And I think everyone has to go through this, uh, usually, unless you're just like the natural and you just make it happen like Robert Refn in, <laughs> in that quintessential baseball movie. Uh, and, and I can relate to it too, because if you come in and you voice your opinion right out of the gate and you're, maybe you're not the leader formally, or maybe you already are, but people know, you know, Daniel usually ha- has the answer here. If you go first, 
everyone else a lot of times will just be like acquiesce and okay daniels said it he probably got it you know we're going to move on how and a lot of it goes too to to the how authority plays out in an organization but if you get those ideas from people first as you say listen versus speaking that simple act it gets the ideas out and, and one of the things i remember dave cody i had dave cody on who was the, the legendary ceo of honeywell and one of the things that that he talked about was when he's asking for people's feedback in the room he always starts with the most junior people because he Smart. knows if their boss speaks first, they're just going to say, yeah, what she said, or yeah, what what uh, he said. What's your perspective on that? That's a great approach. That's a great approach. And you and I chat a little bit about this in the pre-discussion, which is, you know, it's a little bit cliche, but if you're the smartest guy in the room, I don't belong in the room. Like, I just, I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. Uh, you know, maybe at one time when I was younger, I probably thrived off of that. That was my competitive side to living my life. But quite honestly, uh, you know, I love the fact that I have a team that is so diverse, mm. so good at what they do, and they have skills that are much better than the skills that I have. And managing and working with them and being alongside of them and actually getting my hands dirty with them and learning, that that's the treasure. Not being the one to come up with all the ideas or, or solving all the problems that exist. And so my perspective is that what what a smart way to do that. What a smart way to do that, right? Go go to the folks that are more entry level, perhaps have a different perspective that you didn't even think of. It's a great approach. So what are you what are you doing inside your organization to make sure you're not the smartest guy in the room? And by the way, some leaders might be listening to this and saying, like, you know, Daniel and Ben are crazy. Like the smartest guy in the room is like, I mean. It feels good. It's like the ultimate ego stroke. <laughs> I have yeah. the, I'm the smartest. But yeah, so we're, so we're flipping that on its head and we're saying, hey, that's not the right room. But maybe I'm curious how you approach it from a hiring, from a group. Maybe you're not even hiring people. You're creating like a, like a project team around a big, a big hot idea. How are you thinking through this to make sure that plays out? Well, Ben, I, I think the first thing is you need to identify what's what's truth. What is the truth of what you're looking to accomplish, right? At the end of the day, that facilitates what you need. If you can understand what the truth is of whether it's a project, somebody you're hiring, the fulfillment part becomes a little easier because now you know what you're looking for. Mm. So if I'm not the strongest data person, but yet I need somebody with an analytics background, I'm certainly not going to go to a client and present the analytics piece of it. I'm going to go find who my best resource is to bring that person on board to team with me mm -hmm. uh, and and deliver that message or hire that person. So it it's it comes back to what's what's true. What is it that you need, and how are you going to fulfill that engagement for what you need? I like that. So you say you you've been known to say that one of your personal leadership principles is keeping it real. You already alluded to it with blunt communication style. That might be your uh, sort of your MO and how you've, how you've modified that, you know, as you've grown inside the organization, but I would love to hear how has keeping it real impacted your leadership journey. It could be positive and negative in some ways too. 
for that matter. Yeah, it, it does go both ways, right? Sometimes you have to be the one to deliver some pretty bad news. Um, and I don't, I don't sugarcoat it. So I don't do well with just sugarcoating the news. I'd rather hear the news and then deal with it uh, with its aftermath afterwards. And sometimes that's not the right way to do it. Uh, and that's, that's more about finessing and being able to deliver a message that's tough, which you can do and still be, be real. That's something I've also learned along the ways, right? Like you can finesse be the real, real message. and finesse. Exactly right. Um, without sugarcoating. Um, but the, the, the piece that I enjoy most, I think, about being real mm-hmm. is that there are no surprises. There are no gotcha moments. There are no ahas. Here it is. This is the situation, or again, this is the truth, and here's what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to do it. And I would like to hear that feedback uh, in return as well. So there, it's it's a two way street, really. Um, and the transparency is is really big to me. I think transparency is is key. I'd rather know uh, that the the world is coming to an end than be surprised. Yeah, good call. People can get ready. And I think you I think about that and, and you're setting the standard for your team in terms of how they communicate. And if they realize it's okay to deliver bad news, I had a boss that said, Hey Ben, it's okay to deliver bad news, but don't do it or try to not do it suddenly. Give them plenty sure. of notice. This is coming. That's so correct. people can get prepared. It's better to give bad news early than do it late. And uh, a lot of ways to think of businesses, I'd be curious on your perspective. They, there's like this, like, okay, I, I see something bad could happen with a customer. Say you have a project that's failing. Like, I'm just going to, we're going to work hard. We're going to try to fix this thing. So no one's going to find out outside our group that it, how bad or, or a cluster this thing is becoming. Uh, and then they wait, 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 wait. And then it just manifests itself into a bigger problem. And then they have to tell everybody, and it's kind of late in the process. And people are saying, well, if you just delivered that bad news earlier, you know, we could have gotten ready for it. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. So as a project leader, you know, what, how do you observe this situation when, Hey, your team can fix it without it getting out of control versus, Hey, you need to go ahead and, and sound the alarm. So the rest of the company can get ready for it. Sure. And I think it's communication, man. I, th- I think it's having that safe zone within the team that you're allowed to fail and we're allowed to fail fast. We're allowed to make those adjustments and we're allowed to make mistakes. I mean, that's that's what makes us all better, and that's what makes us progress. And to your point of letting things boil over, I, I've been over my years and engaging with clients, have the opportunity to deliver bad news multiple times throughout my career. And what I found is that, A, if you have to do it many times, you get better at it. So the anxiety is not there as much as it is the first time around. Um, and B... If you're having a transparent and an honest conversation with someone, there is empathy that mm. goes both ways. And, and I think 
people actually start to respect and provide you with the credibility you deserve and understand that some things are within your control, some things are not, but at least I could prepare. I could prepare for what is inevitable. And you've given me enough time and resources. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's going to be pain to it. There might be a lost contract. There might be compression on the contract. But at the very least, my relationship has probably become mm-hmm. stronger for the future to actually exceed where we were at one point within the contract. And that's happened quite a few times. So, so can you give us an example or a story? Uh, and I'll, I'll let you choose your own adventure. Of when... <laughs> you did it right and you got a great result or and or you just did it plain out wrong and it didn't get the, get what you wanted yeah um without going into specifics or, or client names um I'll, I'll give you one of each there there was a point in my my career where we were transitioning the philosophy of who we sell to and how we sell and a part of that was having some pretty significant and pretty um, tough conversations through that process. And sometimes we were taking a bit of an abrasive approach to it. Hmm. And in doing so, we ticked off this client pretty poorly where this client called my boss and, you know, said, hey, there's Hmm. um, some, you know, some challenges here and these are what they are. And this is what we're going through. Now I had options. Hmm. I could have ignored it and continued down the path. I could have had my boss make that phone call and try to save the day. Or I could have stepped up, acknowledged it, ate some crow, fell on the sword, learned from it, and build a relationship. Today, I'm happy to say I still talk to this person after 20 plus years, and we have a great relationship. All right. This person is within our organization, helps us. We help them, um, and it's been been fruitful over the years. And that's not even commercial. I'm just saying in general a, mm-hmm. of a relationship. Mm-hmm. So th- that's one of those relationship conversations that we had that was on the poor side that has converted into something a little bit more positive. And um, you know, I think uh, on on the good side, it's just about having transparent conversation and being honest, being real. Yeah, I, like I don't that. do fake, Ben. Yeah, I, I really like that. And one of the themes I'm thinking about of this episode, and I like to, we always, I'm, I'm always thinking about this, is how, like, what's the best way to deliver bad news as a leader? And I think we pretty much, or you nailed it with direct communication. But then you also said accompanying that with some finesse and yep. learning to work that through. And probably the best darn way to get good at it is just, as you say, you put you get you got to put the reps in. You, you got to yeah. do it periodically yeah. and how a lot of times our success as leaders isn't how we handle success and good news. Sure. Our success as leaders is that what we do when things go wrong and how we effectively communicate that. Now, moving on a little bit. Sure. Also know from our conversation how important work ethic is for you. And, and how that's a piece of your, that, that's, that's a key part of your, or at least my impression of how you operate, you know, as a leader. Um, question for you, and I want to get into your philosophy and spend some time on this, but what, and especially in a business like yours, global, there's no real downtime measuring and balancing work ethic with 
your personal life. You obviously have a family right. uh, that you're, you know, you're coaching soccer. Okay. So how are you thinking about work-life balance versus work ethic? It's very important. Um, and I think the pandemic was a great lesson of that for not just me, but probably for millions of people and in, in all different aspects of careers, right? You look at the end of the day, I, I'm not doing heart surgery. I am reviewing data and I have to remind myself over that at times, whether it's a good situation or bad situation, I'm not saving lives. There's much more important things in life than just looking at information. Family is first. And I am a big proponent of saying that to my entire team. If something's going on, if this, you know, if Johnny needs to be at a uh, violin concert or, you know, Susie needs to be at an ice hockey game, it is important that you spend time with your family. At the end of the day, that's who you come home to. Then there's this other family, which is our work family. And it is equally important to, to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. So I have to be able, if I'm going to preach it, I also have to show it and I have to share it. And I think it's really important when um, we, we talk about our family life as well as our work life. You, you do need to find that balance. If you don't have the balance, you're not going to be as effective as work at work. Mm-hmm. You're just not. Um, you need to take that time off. You need to reset those batteries. You need to go and and hang out what makes you happy outside of work. Because when you come back to work, I guarantee you're going to be more productive. Hmm. Yeah. That can fuel you at work when things are going well outside of work. I've experienced Mm -hmm. that and that makes a lot of sense. And it's hard when things aren't going well outside of work. Sometimes it's hard to focus at work, you know, and do your best. And we all have times where not everything's going right in both domains mm-hmm. and it's nice to have one family to sort of feed the other. So your work family can be supportive sure. when you're having trouble and the personal side, you know, or vice versa. Um, so when you think about, think about this and you're communicating this idea of the work family and your personal family to your team, how, how does that conversation go when you're, I mean, say you're bringing on a new hire, you're trying to share this philosophy with them. Yeah, you know, I think it's natural. I I do think it's through relationship building and creating that bond and creating that trust and the foundation of the team. I don't think there is a a playbook, so to speak, on how to engage in that. You know, look, we can certainly pick up textbooks on leadership and go to the the page where it says, hey, how do you communicate this and how do you build this? But at the end of the day, I think it's done through natural resources, through through conversations, through building that friendship and building trust. Uh, What I love about my team specifically and my work family is that I don't know just about them. I know about their dogs. I know about their kids. I know what colleges they're going to. I know what cars they're looking to negotiate on. I, I know that, you know, there's a big trip coming up and, you know, uh, the trip is going to bring an entire family together. Hmm. So uh, it, it's it's that balance of having that friendship and, and the work family. And you're right. I love what you said about one family can help the other when, when one's not doing as well as the other. And we've all been there. Um, but I think it's just natural 
relationship building and those skills that come from that, um, that really encourage us to be better both at work and at home. Well, that says a, a lot about you as a leader that you know these things and that your that your that your team is revealing. Hey, I'm trying to negotiate a car, or this is what I'm up to on my trips. Your organization is largely remote. Am I right? In, in, in a lot of yeah. ways, uh, right now we we are we are remote. Um, we you know we are all home. We will come into the office to meet in person should we well, choose to. So. What are you doing? Like, what's your process? Because it's a lot easier to have those conversations mm-hmm. at the water cooler, at, at coffee, in between meetings that when you're bumping into each other versus a remote organization where a lot yeah. of times people get on, they're all business sure. on Teams or Google Meet or Zoom, and they then they get off and go to the next meeting and they're back to back. I don't have time to talk about these things. Sure. What is sort of what is your process for sure. making that happen and understanding these things? This beautiful world of technology has made it so much easier for us to be accessible and mm-hmm. visual uh, where we can actually see each other. It's not the same as being in person. So let's acknowledge that um, there there are people yeah. I haven't seen in years. But once I see them, it's just a it's like reconnecting again. Um, so the process for me, Ben, I, you know the the formality of having a meeting on a calendar. Uh, there there is there is a time and a place for that, mm-hmm. and and sure we should be organized and we should have an agenda, and we should focus on work. But there is nothing wrong with having this meeting that gets put on a calendar. Maybe it's a day in advance. Maybe it's a few hours in advance, where it's just, mm-hmm. hey, we're just checking in. How are things going? How's your world doing? Has home doing? Has the new car? Has your new dog? Um, so on and so forth. I think those just random check-ins are actually really helpful. I offer out to my team, everyone, um, to do coffee connections. Hmm. And essentially, they're 15-minute conversations. If they need more, they have more. Um, but I schedule 30-minute increments. It's, it's there for 15 minutes if that's all they need. And it's up to the individual. If there's a conversation they want to have, whether it's about the organization, we're going. Th- we we are in the midst of a merger, as you know. Um, IRI and MPD have merged, so there's a lots of questions of what's going on within the company. What do we look oh, yeah. like? Who are we targeting? How do we work with the folks at IRI? How do we work with the folks at NPD? And so, uh, you know, having these discussions, whether it's personal or professional, not having it so formal, and being just a regular person um, has has really helped me build that relationship within the team as well. Do you have also more formal cadence of one-on-ones that's more business related? And these coffee conversations are more Mm -hmm. of a, or an additional 15? Yeah, they're they're additional for for those that A, want to take me up on it. It's on them. They own it. If they want it, it's there. Um, B, it could be about any topic they feel like discussing. I'm here to listen. And I do my best to listen and not advise unless I'm asked to provide some of that advice. Um, so that that's that's really the way I do it. But yes, we do have our formal ones too. We have formal catch-ups um, yeah. with my direct reports as well as um, you know team meetings and things of that nature. Sure. Daniel, I love that coffee connection in principle. I know mm-hmm. my problem would be because mm-hmm. I would do these for a while, then I would start start thinking, 
is this a, am I being productive? It's like a little mouse in the back of my brain. <laughs> like, is this, is this productive? I just had a one-on-one with this person last week and now, now we're talking about their trip. They should be, instead <laughs> of talking about their trip, they should be <laughs> teaching their backup what to do when they're going to Tahiti. Cause I want to be doing their job if they don't do it, You know, so I, I'm just thinking maybe you don't have this problem. I don't know. But what's your advice for someone, maybe yours truly, yeah. who says these 15-minute things? I don't know. It sounds good, but I would struggle. I don't know. What do you think? I, I hear you, Ben. And you know where I struggle? I, I struggle if I feel it becomes forced. Hmm. So let, let me let me dive yeah. into that a little bit more. I may have had a one-on-one with our CEO or my boss last week. And then all of a sudden on my calendar, if you want, there's this 15-minute coffee conversation that you can have with me. My personal attitude is I'm taking that call because it's an opportunity to take 15 minutes and share what's on my mind with somebody who is more senior than I am. Hmm. But does it come across as forced? That's my biggest fear Hmm. because then it's no longer natural. It's forced. And and so that's my, uh, my worry. Um, I don't do them. And this is, I go back to what I said, which is the individual owns them. I don't put them on the calendar. I don't force anybody to have it. If the person feels that they want to have it, I'm here, I'm available. And because I've been here for so long, I could relate to a lot of the issues that these folks are probably witnessing, whether it be with a client, whether it would be with an internal situation. I could be a voice. Um, I could also be an ear. And um, so it's it's really up to the individual to own it. I'm I'm a big proponent and fan of um, own your career and and really strive to do what it is that you want to do mm-hmm. and you drive it. Um, and and I, I do think it comes across as more natural. Yeah, I like that. It's it's an invitation. It's available. And I think that's the word that you said. Or a lot of that's a great way to say it. It's I available. think I mean you. It was it's your word. You're talking about availability. And I think that's the key. Cause a lot of times people feel like, oh, my boss is not available. I either have to have to take care of everything, the personal stuff and the professional and the get to know you stuff all in that one-on-one or in our staff meeting, or I'm pretty much done. And it puts so much pressure on those times to work everything in. And y'all, it's not always easy to mix business and personal. Sure. In the same, it's like if you show up for one-on-one, it kind of business-oriented. It's it's hard to work all that in. And the fact that you're saying, hey, there's this other available time for more personal, get-to-know-you sure. chat, trust-building kind of thing, I think is great. Even if your employees don't take you up on it all the time, it's available and you're available. And I think in a remote world, that's so important. Um, yeah. I agree with you. And if I could add on, uh, what helps is being vulnerable. Hmm. And and I think that's such an important thing in a relationship. Uh, you know, I'm vulnerable at home with my kids and my wife. I'm okay to say, hey, I was wrong and I'm sorry. And this is why I was wrong. And in in the work aspect, it's also good to be vulnerable, to share things that and experiences that you went through that just didn't work out. Or things that are going on at home. Hey, I'm having an off day today. I'm sorry if I had a little bit of an attitude today. This is what's going on. 
in my household, that's creating some frustration. And I apologize for that. I'm going to fix that. Um, so vulnerable is, is, is very, um, is, is very influential, quite frankly, in getting that relationship going. It, it helps um, take the guard down and, and helps have a, a little bit of a healthier conversation. Do you have a, and, and if you don't, that, you know, we can go on to something else here if we start to wind sure. up, but do you have a favorite mistake or lesson that you learned in life that you like to share with family, friends, or employees to sort of set that tone with them? on the vulnerability front? <laughs> you know, when I first started at NPD uh, back in 1999 as a 21-year-old kid, I was in an operational role. And uh, I'm not an operations guy, but it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I learned something that made me get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And one of the cool things that actually happened, and it was a major mistake, Never forget it. I was responsible for building a category, a database, so to speak. And I made a change in our database that became a global change. And within minutes, we had major manufacturers calling us to tell us the data were wrong. And so I was getting phone calls left and right because I was the guy responsible for that category. Now at 21, with a ton of pride, Admitting that kind of mistake for somebody who was as competitive as I was, and I am, it was really hard. But once I heard it, I walked into the head of that group's office and said, there's a major mistake. Here's what happened. Here's what I did. And here's what I'm going to do to fix it. Hmm. And we fixed it. And everybody was fine. And the world went on. And I'm okay. But it was a great, great lesson uh, and being vulnerable and being able to be okay to do that. But in a short tenure at 21 in, in this company, um, in, in a short few months, I felt it was okay to do that. And I felt that way my entire career here. Hmm. I just got a chill on that last comment. I felt that way my entire career here uh, from that moment at 21. And who knows, you know, you, it, that perhaps helped your leadership. I mean, it helped you stay. It helped you think about yourself and, and, and your place. And it, this ties in perfectly to failing fast and solving it and moving on. Sure does. Because at 21, sure you hit a button and you pretty much yeah, took it, it down was, or whatever. <laughs> it was a bonehead error. I will tell you that. <laughs> oh, all right, Daniel. But so I'm glad I up, made it. Yeah. What, what's your parting thought for our listeners today? You know, we, we talked a lot about uh, vulnerability, accountability, and and work ethic. I, like I said, I'm not the, sh- the smartest guy in the room, but I'll be damned if I'm outworked. <laughs> and I walk the walk um, for sure. You can't just talk and say words without actions. Actions are really what define you as not only a leader, but as a person. And if you take a step back and you look at the core of individuals and where they're coming from through their actions, you'll find lots of really great people out there. Thanks, so Daniel. I would say, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free 
signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.